And at that point, for the first time in my life, I looked inward because there was nothing else to grab onto. And I read a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi by a guy named Paramahasa Yogananda, and it changed my life. I'm Brian Kramer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. Welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on small shifts that can make epic differences in our lives and at work. I am so excited to introduce our guest, who is someone I admire, uh, who's become a dear friend recently, like as of tw- uh, 2020, and also a recent coach and 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 becoming now an author, has been a speaker, is has been in the... We're, we have so many things in common. So really cool. And I'm honored to have him on the show, uh, Joey Dumont. Um, he describes himself as having lived an amazing life. He's traveled the world on someone else's dime, enjoyed a college degree level career without a degree, and became one of many peacocking urban males populating major coastal cities fancy office buildings and convention centers, hotel lobbies, bars, restaurants. However, within every insecure and arrogant male resides a scared little boy demanding attention. And if he was ever going to experience the true fullness of life, he needed a shift and he needed one badly. And I know how that happens. In fact, that's why I wanted to have him on the show. This show is all about shifts. And while he was living a pretentious parade, he wanted to see that come to an end. And he did. And he did that through a book that is coming out. And I'm really excited to share that as well. We'll talk just a tiny bit about it. It's called Joey Somebody, The Life and Times of a Recovering Douchebag. Yes, you heard that right. Recovering Douchebag. Um, he did, as he mentions, he managed to marry a woman who saw beyond his facade and was the catalyst to his recovery, the recovery of an entire story that fascinates me. Uh, he started a great family. He loves his boys. And now he's a stay-at-home dad on top of launching a coaching career. And he retold his life. We're going to talk about that. But what it took to get here is what's most fascinating to me. And I think it'll be fascinating to you. Joey, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. I'm fascinating on fascinated on a lot of different levels. One of which is you come from the advertising industry, much like I do, and that kind of got us connected. But then also we connected on a, a show uh, where it was like an engaging show where we could talk to each other, and then I think we just connected on a lot of different levels from there. But um, here we are, here we're talking, and 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 we've never actually met in person, and yet you live in San Francisco, I live in San Jose, and one of these days we're actually <laughs> yep. going to have a real human hug, and that's going to yes. be so cool. Yes, that will be nice and, and welcomed and overdue. So overdue, so overdue. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I just I'm going to jump right in. Um, I always sure. like to jump in because we've got so much, so much to cover. Um, what's one thing, Joey, that you that felt small for you at a time, but ended up being a big shift for you? I think the biggest shift in my life was when I was thirty. I was in business with my father, um, and he embezzled my money. And and in one day, I found out that I was six figures in debt. He hadn't paid the rent that I was making payments to him on. I was evicted from my house two weeks later. 
I was upside down in a Range Rover I couldn't afford to sell because I couldn't pay it off. Um, and I didn't have anything to attach to myself. There was no job. There was no paycheck. There was no title. There was no, there was no thing, right? Um, and at that point, I, for the first time in my life, I looked inward because there was nothing else to grab onto. And I read a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi by a guy named Paramahasa Yogananda, and it changed my life. It was the first spiritual book I'd ever read. Um, and then it took me into a whole study of numerous things, the Tripitaka, the Bhagavad Gita, even the Bible, because my mom asked me to reread that as a, as a recovering Catholic. Um, so I did. Um, but I think the, the neat thing about that was because of what was at the time a very traumatic event, um, I focused on something I'd never focused on before. And it didn't seem big at the time. But then I realized that there, we're all playing the same game on different boards with different rules with the same destination, which was presence. And every spiritual text I ever read was presence. Um, and that was a big shift. And please understand that that took place for a year. And then I um, enthusiastically reprised the role of douchebag when I went back to the corporate world um, after my father. And it took me another 10 years probably to re-engage with that level of thinking. Did you ever forgive your dad or did that divide everything from that point on? I did because I think any type of... My father was a malignant narcissist. So he did a lot of really bad stuff, which we talk about um, in my memoir. And before he passed, um, we were at Denny's because he loved Denny's. Um, and we were eating some Grand Slam breakfast, a favorite of his. And I said, Dad, I just want you to know, because he was very sick at the time. He had renal failure and he wasn't going to be around much longer. And I said, I just want you to know, I love you, Pops. And uh, I forgive you for everything you did to our little family. And he just looked at me very, very strangely and said, for what? And I said, it's all good, man. I just want you to know I still love you and I forgive you. And it was a big weight off of my shoulders. And I think that's the thing about forgiveness. It's not, it's not for the other person, it's for you, right? To harbor hate um, or regret or anything else that's, that's deep at that level, it just eats you alive slowly. So I did forgive him. And uh, even at his funeral, I looked up and said, you know, I love you and I still forgive you. And I know you don't get it, but it's okay. <laughs> so yeah, got through that the correct way. And my therapist helped me out a lot with that. <clears throat> Oh man, it must have taken a lot growing up as you were, uh, as, as you were, uh, you know, just a young boy uh, going through life, getting getting into. You got into the advertising industry um, well before that happened, and then and then you got into business with your dad. What was the business uh, you, that got you out of advertising and into doing something with him? And then I didn't get into advertising until I was. 30. Oh, okay. So yeah, I started out as a salesman. Um, I sold life insurance. I sold stock <laughs> at a little awful firm called Stuart James Investment Bankers. And then I got a job selling litigation support, which was software that actually helps document productions. So big lawsuits involve document productions so that you can share discovery with all the parties. I was the sales guy who went around and talked to lawyers and said, hey, do you want me to handle your database management? And they'd say, sure. And then I'd take him to lunch. And so I made a living and a very good one doing that um, in my 20s. And because I was tied to the litigation business, my dad decided to go to law school. And upon graduation, we were going to start a mediation firm um, for insurance companies. And uh, we did that for about a year. 
where I sold his services as a mediator uh, because he had a background in insurance and then he was uh, a Juris Doctorate. He'd yet to pass the bar. Um, and we were only about a year into the business when I found out um, that he was stealing from me. And I found out because a BMW dealership called me and said, hey, Joey, we need you to come down and co-sign for your dad's new BMW. And I was like, what? You know, like, is this a joke? I thought it was like, is this a radio show? Because you got me, you know. Um, But it was, he was like, no, you need to come down and co-sign. And I said, okay, can you put my dad on the phone? And then I just blew his face off. I was so mad. Um, And then I checked my bank accounts and, and he had over the last, we had a couple of bank accounts that were just pure savings. So I didn't look at them, which was also my, my bad. Um, and I realized that he absconded with the funds over the last eight or nine months. And, and, uh, that was kind of the end of our relationship at that point. Um, I still later on supported him, um, again, which was for me more so than him. Uh, but he put me in a really bad place. Well, let's just say this, um, that lesson taught me spirit. That lesson taught me about inner strength and peace of mind and presence and love and, and love of self. So he, he taught me in a weird way. You know, I think they said that Buddha wept when his nemesis died. So I kind of went through the same kind of thing with my pops. But yeah. I, who kept the BMW? Did you get to keep it? And was it, did it well, have Well, no, we didn't the- buy it. <laughs> we didn't buy it. I just told the guy I would not co-sign on it. It was an $80,000 car, by the way. And this is in 1996. So, I mean, this was, that was like just completely foreign to me. I didn't even understand. I knew BMW was expensive, but this was a 70, 750 IL with everything on it. <laughs> I still, I'll just, I'll always remember that day. If you're going to go all in, you might as well go all in, right? My dad did that in spades. Yeah. Wait, this was not one of the only times that you faced uh, a small, small shift. Um, or a shift. Uh, there were many shifts in your life. So uh, you had a shift also in the insurance business where you were selling uh, insurance and you did not just sort of well, you did really well. I did okay. I did really well in the litigation support business. That's where I made a lot of money. And that's where I bought my first Mercedes and my first Porsche. And so that... and. custom-made suits. I mean, I went crazy um, because I was so insecure about working with these guys. And it was the the division that I worked for, the litigation support division, was a very small division of something called the financial printing industry. And the financial printing industry was the company that filed your SEC filings, your 10Ks and your Qs. It printed your prospectuses. And these were big Big time salespeople. I mean, like ex ball players from the Minnesota Twins, professional football. Um, they had mid six figure salaries plus bonuses. These guys were making seven figures a year. And a lot of them, guys and gals. And um, when I went into that industry, I was selling copies because that's what that was. I was Mr. Copy Guy, you know, that's what we were doing with software. Um, and so my insecurity was so raging <laughs> that I couldn't keep up with these folks on the intellectual front, the educational side. Um, they were well-to-do, put-together folks who had homes in Marin. Their kids were in private schools. They had beach houses in Bodega Bay. Um, and they they congregated together on golf courses and yacht clubs. And I was completely overwhelmed. So that was that was an industry that made my insecurities even worse. 
which took me a while to get over. But <clears throat> your insecurities were worse, and your um, but you, the money was coming in, and the the Correct. you were doing well. So obviously, that didn't solve the insecurity. It made it work. No, if you're trying to mask your insecurity with things, it doesn't work. And it, it took me a long time to figure that out. Um, it, I wish I could say that fig- I figured that out after my 20s, after I lost everything. I went through that year of rock climbing um, with a bunch of really cool people that I met at an indoor climbing gym. We went outdoors. We lived in vans. We ate chili and tuna out of cans. Um, we didn't talk about anything to do with commerce or competition. We just talked, you know, and we talked about our fingers hurting and we talked about really cool holds and really cool moves and how are you going to get past this, they call them problems on the wall. Um, and it was glorious. I mean, I was in deep shit. I mean, I was $150,000 in debt. I had no idea how I was going to pay off. I had credit card people hunting me down. Um, I borrowed money from my college roommates, my brother, my parents, um, and it took me a long time to repay that. But that one year was full of, you know, spiritual reading, rock climbing, engaging with, with self um, for the first time. And so you can make lemonade out of lemons. You know, I know it's a overused adage, but it happened in that case. And then you, that's when you went back into advertising. No, then I went back to financial printing. So after my dad embezzled my money, um, I went to the competitor of the company I was selling litigation support for. And I got a job selling financial printing, which was the biggest job I had ever as far as right out of the gate. Um, big salary, huge expense account, company car, you know, the whole like old school, you've made it kind of thing. Um, and then I spent a year and a half doing that. And I did make a very good living, um, but still reeked of insecurity. Anyone who worked with me at that point can attest to that. <laughs> and then I, this was in 1998. And so this new thing called the internet was bubbling up. And uh, because I was a good sales guy at the S, you know, for Bound, which was the name of the company, I was interacting with CEOs, CTOs of startups. And so I was making friends with all these young companies that were getting funded. And they were offering me positions in, as a VP of sales or director of sales. Um, and so I was right back into the industry. And as opposed to taking it with the brand, I went to work for a small regional um, web agency uh, called Birdsall Interactive, um, who was founded by two of my friends. And I spent three and a half years there learning the ropes of media and marketing and advertising. What year is this? Uh, from 99 to 2003, oh, wow. I was there. Yeah. And then from 2003, I went to an agency called Questus, which was a, at the time, um, kind of a duality. It had market research and web development. Uh, and they were looking for a head of BD. And I went in and, and uh, negotiated a partnership to be an equal partner with them and to get equity. And I would help them build that industry or help them build that agency. And we did. Uh, those two guys, Jeff Jordan, uh, Jeff Rosenblum and Jordan Berg, um, were my partners for over 10 years. And we had an absolute blast working together. And we built the agency up to, at the time I left in 2014, and we were about 50 full-time employees with about 20 contractors. And we won iMedia's um, Ad Agency of the Year, 2011, 2012. Uh, and Jeff uh, and Jordan um, wrote and directed a documentary called The Naked Brand, which was a very, really 
was just a cool industrial film about advertising and social media. And so we were having a blast. We were doing everything right and having a lot of fun. And uh, I, I left that agency in 2014 to go to a startup uh, to run, to be a CRO, a chief revenue officer. You, so, you left, um, you, you were on top, right? You were, yeah, you were flying high. We were great. You, you guys were, you were, you were pulling in a lot, a, a lot of massive accounts, like big accounts. Yes. Yes. We had huge brands. I mean, Capital One, Verizon, Disney, um, you know, Suzuki. We had, it was a great, it was a great run. It was, as I've shared with anybody who wants to listen, it was my Seinfeld decade. It was the best 10 years of my business career. Um, I met um, my then girlfriend, Debbie, at the agency, and she's now my wife, and she is now running the agency. Um, I left it many years ago. Um, but I made more friends at Questus than I've ever made in my life. Some of the best friends I still have to this, to this day. Um, it was fantastic. But we were, we were so successful that there were holding companies talking to us about buying our agency. And, and that was a huge disconnect between me and my partners. I couldn't imagine anything worse than working for a holding company. <laughs> and they were not a big fan of me. Um, they said to my partners that there's many guys out there uh, that could do a better job than I was doing. So it was time for me to leave. Oh, and they wow. didn't ever sell. They didn't ever sell. They kept it, which was, the, I think, the greatest decision they ever made. But, um, and they're still doing amazing work for all the same clients. And yeah, it was, that was part of my ego too. So it took me a long time <laughs> to learn how to get to back to square, back to me. There's something around that um, where A, your performance was, was stellar. You were bringing in Disney and Verizon and um, all these big uh, Capital One um, and I kind of want to just focus there for a second. Um, there's, there's a lot of different avenues we go with, you know, your wife and, and you're leaving and, and all that kind of stuff. But just even just in that one, one, one time, I, advertising is one of the hardest, most stressful industries around. Um, it, and you and I both know that because we left, um, uh, because I mean, part of that is it's, it's stressful. So, now, now you layer on top of that the fact that you have to get business constantly. It's it's a service industry, um, and to get business, the hoops you have to jump through are massive. Now you're 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 hunting down and you're you're trying to build relationships in these massive um, areas with these big brands. What do you attribute to the shifts that you had to make to do that coming from? you know, this career of insurance and printing and, and, um, you know, all this other stuff. And then here you are in, in the advertising industry, closing this kind of work. How did you make that shift? And how did you start to start to do this incredible work? Sometimes insecurity and fear is your friend. I think that as a college dropout, I had insecurities around that. I thought that everyone else was smarter than I was. And so when I got into any industry, whether it was financial printing or the ad world, I started to understand like I need to do a lot of homework and not just be buzzword compliant, right? Not just be able to understand what people are saying, but have enough knowledge of the actual industry to ask the right questions. And so that took a long time and a lot of homework. And so that is something I proved throughout my career is that 
fear motivated me to understand the questions I needed to answer, or excuse me, the questions I needed to ask. And when you can do that, you're in great shape because if you can ask a client, you know, what is your North Star? Where can we help you go? Uh, <laughs> you know, and sometimes they don't have the answer. And then at that point, um, you now have a very good dialogue because they're like, okay, that, this guy gets the joke. It's not, he's not saying, hey, I have an agency and I'm going to solve these problems for you. Um, and as the pitch guy, that was something I learned quickly is that when you go into a brand who's been, you know, the CMO and their team, maybe she's been, you know, maybe the CMO has been there for four years and she has this great team and she brings you guys in, us, the agency folk to come in and help. A lot of times what happens with agencies and you've been there, um, the big shops will come in and say, here's how we're going to fix your problems, right? And I always took the approach of like, hey, per your creative brief, we spent the last three weeks. So please understand, we do not understand what you've done historically. So we're not saying this is the answer, but we're saying with what we had to, as data, here's what we think could work with one campaign and then kind of ease into it that way. And, and that approach really worked well for me and it worked well for our team. And so what I really learned and what actually did best in the business world was build and procure and motivate teams and then take those teams and sell them to these brands. And we got the Verizon business and all things being equal, we were brought in to help them with their Web 2.0 in 2004. And they, as you know, were a staid telco that wanted to make a big splash um, with their new broadband division. And so they hired us to help them kind of move away from that stodgy old image to a much younger, hipper, cooler brand. And so we, we got to do all these really cool things with like Gwen Stefani and Jill Scott and the Tribeca Film Festival. And so and we got to do work for them with the Grammys. And so like this team, you know, that we brought in were some of the greatest people ever. And we had some of the most fun ever. And when we pitched to win the big agency account, um, we won. And then a couple months later, we were at dinner and we were overserved and having a lot of fun. And my client said to me, she goes, do you know why we chose you guys? And I was like, ah, I thought it was because we're the best shop ever, you know? And she's like, we just want to let you know, you guys did great creative. But what really inspired us was during the presentation, you got up and gave water to the team. And I said, I don't remember doing that. She said, well, it's not a point. Do you remember it? We remembered it. She's like, this is the kind of team we want to work with. They like each other. They have respect for each other. And there's not a big, weird hierarchy here. Um, as the managing director, I always felt like I was lucky to have a spot on the team. I never felt like they were reporting to me. And uh, I think that was you know, one of my strengths. Because I definitely had humility um, outside of the, the arrogance that I perpetuated often. But that was the, the reason I think I love the industry. I love the people and I love the team. And when you love something and you pitch them as a group, um, it comes across. It's that unwritten thing where people are like, I like these people. You know, they're just nice people and I want to work with them. And I think that was, that was a shift that took place over a period of you know, many years. But I got there. I got to the point where I was like, okay, this is what I'm good at. You know, when people ask me as a joke, what do you do for a living? I said, I ask brands for large checks. That's, that's basically what I did for a living for 15 years. Mm. 
you know, the, the experiences and the ability to do what you did runs deep and um, the relationships you build and the way that you do it, it obviously it comes through and every, everybody listening, I think can, can tell in the way that you've learned from all the little shifts throughout your career and life. And, you know, just the experience with your dad and the experience through how you learn to forgive and the experience of each of the careers that you've had and, um, and, and all, all the things together. And I'm sure when people go out and read your book, they're going to be surprised by all the other things that we couldn't quite possibly <laughs> cover in this podcast. Um, yeah. but there is one shift that I do want to talk about and that's what happened in 2007. Um, uh, and that's, uh, was a pretty big shift for you. Um, and it, 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 and your family and it created, you know, a shift in your own life of what you held dear, but also it created, you know, more for what you wanted out in your own life. Um, and that was the, um, you know, the death of your brother and how that happened. I know that was both devastating, but at the same time, maybe a little bit more of a learning for, for you too, about who you, who you became and how this book started. So how did that have an, an effect now looking back? How did that have an effect on you? Well, I think a little bit of backstory there is that, as I mentioned about my dad, he was cruel and my little brother uh, was just incapable of managing that mentally. Um, when you're abused by your parent who you just inherently trust, it, it actually triggers um, neuroplasticity in your brain. It, it, you malfunction. You have brain damage. Um, and he started drinking at the age of 10 to calm his brain and to calm his, his sadness. And yeah, we didn't really get that. But he was you know, a full-blown alcoholic before he was um, in high school. Uh, he was sneaking drinks. My stepfather was an alcoholic, so they didn't notice because he was drinking so much every day that you know you couldn't measure. Um, and then over the years, he found other things that were, you know, added to the panoply of abuse: um, heroin and methamphetamines and uh, every drug you could possibly think of, opioids of all different shapes and colors, and orange bottles with childhood safety caps. Um, and in two thousand seven. When everything was going well, for me, financially, I was a partner at an ad agency. We were kicking butt. Um, I brought him out to California from Minnesota to live with me. And we went look for apartments. And I was going to get him his own studio because he'd never lived alone. He, was, he had such a tough life. And he'd lived in my mom's basement for the last many years because he was unemployed quite often. Um, and as an addict and an alcoholic, he was in and out of rehab centers and in and out of jail. And he was just a mess. And he was the greatest dude. You know, deep down, he had a huge smile. He loved everybody. He loved to hug. Um, you know, he was my hero on that front. And we, we brought him out here on April 1st, uh, 2007. And 10 days later, I brought him to the agency and introduced him to all the, all the mates. And we went to dinner or lunch on Pier 39 outside and had a bunch of fun. And everyone loved him. And, and, I gave him a hug uh, before I went back to work. And I said, all right, let's get some pizza tonight. You know, I'm going to go for a motorcycle ride after work and I'll see you back at the apartment. So he went home and I went for a motorcycle ride after work, came home and I jumped in the front door. And I was like, what's up, dude? You know, thinking he'd just sit there on the couch and I didn't hear anything. So that kind of freaked me out because I figured, oh, he's drinking again, you know? 
So I kind of walked down the hall and I saw the bathroom door open and I, I popped the, kicked the door open with my foot and said, dude, what are you doing in here? And then I looked in there and he was upside down floating in the bathtub. He was purple and blue. Um, he was dead. And there was an aerosol can perched on the corner of the sink. Um, so he was drunk and he was huffing, which is something I don't know if any you or any listeners know, but there's aerosol, there's a propellant called a refrigeration propellant in these aerosol cans. And if you inhale it, you get high, really high. But there's a high death rate to it. Um, and obviously that was the case with my little brother. And that whole scene, you know, uh, changed my life because it's it was weird to hold his body and not feel anything. And then when I called the paramedics, you know, they rushed in and they're like, how long has he been out? And blah, blah, blah. I said, he's gone. He's gone. And they're like, why is he gone? And I'm like, how do you know he's gone? I'm like, he's gone. I can't feel him. You know, it was an actual like palpable feeling where his soul, however you want to frame it, uh, had left the building, right? He was gone. And it was just a corpse. It was just skin and bones and blood. And there was nothing there anymore. And that was something where um, the big shift there was I started going to therapy. <laughs> you know, I got done with Stevie. Uh, I fell in love with my now wife, Debbie. And I started seeing a therapist the following year uh, to un unwrap the rage because uh, there was a lot of rage there. I blamed my dad. I blamed my stepfather. I blamed everybody um, for his abuse. And I couldn't fix him. You know, I couldn't save him. And I couldn't save him at the end. You know, I tried to save him year and year and year, bailing him out, sending him money, paying off drug dealers, doing what I need to do to keep him alive. And then I actually literally couldn't save his life with mouth to mouth. So it was just one of those very frustrating things as a big brother. Um, you know, can you help? The answer to anyone who has an addict out there is you can help. You cannot help. You can be there and you can love them, but you can't help. They have to want to help themselves. And that kind of made me like, oh, you need to help yourself, Joey. <laughs> you need to get over this, uh, the same pain that he's gone through and the same pain my brother goes through, my older brother as well. Um, and that was the next big shift. The, the therapist, I sat on a couch for eight years um, and unwound all of that. And, and it, it changed everything. I mean, it, it, it allowed me to live a life of self-love, not arrogance, but actual love for myself. And if you can love yourself, then you can indeed love somebody else, which I do. You know, I love my wife and my little boys madly. So it, it was a good thing. And I always thank Stevie in a weird way um, for waking me up, you know. And I talk to him quite a bit <clears throat> because he's somewhere. I don't know exactly <laughs> where he is, but I, I just talked to the ether. Oh, man. Somewhere I, I can kind of feel him around that conversation. And, and he's, just, he's just sitting there. Saying that, yeah, he pops in. He's 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 got a little <laughs> bit of gratitude around that, and yeah. And, and did he have? Did he have, did when you guys were together? Was there a lot of humor too? Oh my god, we laughed all the time. Yeah, he was hilarious. He was really really funny. Um, big Beavis and Butthead guy like yeah. to make fun of that. And so I thought of him on the Super Bowl commercials this, yeah, this year. Yeah, um, but yeah, he was a riot, and he was everybody's favorite buddy. Um, he liked to karaoke. He liked to just clown around. Um, he loved his friends, <clears throat> he loved his family, and he loved to hug. And that's, there's one thing I miss about Stevie, it's his hugs. He had the, and they weren't, you know, they weren't two, two second, three second hugs. They were full blown 15, 20 second hugs. Cause I think even at that level, he understood that it takes that long 
to feel the energy between each other. So he would just hold on to you. Sometimes you'd let go and he'd be like, nope, you know, <laughs> just keep holding you. <clears throat> so I always, I always wished I had one more. Uh, what a gift he left you to pass on to other people you love. I, I, I'm, uh, I want to, I want to leave with where you're, where you're at now. Um, you, you, uh, obviously you've, you've learned a lot. You've created a lot for yourself. You, you took the time to really put in the work and the effort to, to go through everything you went through. And now you've got, um, a lot in front of you. You have your family, you, you, your, your wife, your kids and, and this great career. Um, what's next for you? Well, I think the neat thing is, you know, you as someone who's helped me with this transition, um, you asked me a question, well, what's your superpower, Joey? And I said, love. And that was an instant answer. And then you followed that up and said, what is love to you? And I said, attention. All right, what's attention to you? And I said, it's presence. And okay, well, what's presence? And well, peace of mind, you know? Um, and that's where I'm at. I think that, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I'm present well over 50% of my life now. Uh, I'm present when I'm coaching my kids. I'm present when I'm with my wife. You know, my brain still feeds me the terrible narrative that I'm not doing as well as I should be doing, or I'm not keeping up with the Joneses when I'm in my car <laughs> driving somewhere by myself. But I'm there now. And, and, you know, the book and the podcast are all in the service of others, which is also something that I was, I've learned over the years. Um, I want to utilize what I've gone through, both on the trauma front, as well as the therapy front, as well as the introspection front, as well as the humility front, uh, to let people know that if you can start to laugh at yourself, which I've been able to do, um, and that was the voice in which we wrote the book with my brother and I, and he was my co-author, then other people can laugh at me as well. And then if they can laugh at me, they might even be able to recognize similarities in themselves. Um, and then start to laugh at themselves. And then we, as a culture, can start to laugh with one another as opposed to at one another. And I think that's the key, right? Um, I've shared with you before, I think that laughter is the beginning of healing. And I think that the podcast, I have you know, my first podcast in the, in the can now. Yeah, tell everybody about the podcast. Like, just uh, give us a quick, uh, what the name, when it's coming out and, okay. and uh, what all that, just. Uh, sure. Yeah, because then I'm going to list in the show notes and everybody will get a chance to. Okay, cool. To. It's, I mean, it's not, it's coming out in March, um, as you know, because you're helping me launch it, but we have the first one in the can. The show is called Laugh Your Cry Out. And so with Joey Dumont, but the idea is as to the start. Joey to- Dumont show. No, I changed it. Oh, we just it's changing in real know, time. So still, there we go. Yes. Laugh your cry out with Joey Dumont just because it seemed less egomaniacal. <laughs> but um, the idea again is to interview guests about the dirty words of our culture. I want people to talk about depression, anxiety, binge eating, bad parenting, alcoholism. And the the good and the bad of the memoir is that everything in there, all those aforementioned words are not unique. We have millions and tens of millions of folks who have an alcoholic parent, who have a narcissistic parent, who have lost a sibling, who've dealt with alcoholism, who've dealt with sickness and death, and, and we don't talk about it. And you know, Brian Bihar was my first guest. And the reason that he was so wonderful, and the reason I chose him as my first guest, 
is that he is a prolific writer on his issues, his, his own depression, his own anxiety, um, his own binge eating. And he does it all with a wonderful flavor. He's, it's, he weaves wonderful humor into very dark places. And I, every time I read his articles, I laugh out loud. And so when I, when I got him on the show, we talked about exactly that. Um, and we laughed together and, you know, we went through some dark conversations together. And that was exactly the purpose of the platform is to say, Hey, it's two guys talking and he's a very successful guy on the, you know, heavy quote success front. He was the showrunner for Fuller House. He's had 22 sitcoms in his very storied career. He's currently unemployed. So he shared that anxiety um, of having kids in college and being unemployed during COVID when Hollywood productions shut down. And, you know, so it was just very real. Um, and that's kind of where I'm trying to go with this whole book and platform uh, and podcast is that I, again, I'm being redundant now, but I want people to start to laugh at themselves and then with one another. That's the goal. Well, I can't think of a better person in this world to bring this to the universe of what we need more now than ever. And um, this is just fantastic. I'm so glad that everybody in my universe got to meet you uh, through this. I'm I'm encouraging everyone to go out and not only subscribe to the podcast, buy the book, um, get to know Joey on all the social platforms, um, join his stuff and, and get, get more love in your life. Um, and, and get to know this cry your laugh out. Um, uh, laugh your cry laugh out. Your cry laugh out. your <laughs> cry out. Cry your laugh yeah. too. Why not? Cry your laugh. Um, Either way. You know, it works both <laughs> ways. So, uh, Joey, thank you so much for showing up, for being, uh, uh, for being transparent as, as possible for sharing your story. And I cannot wait to see 2021, 2022 and beyond and how it, it shows up for you. Well, thanks for having me. And, and thanks for uh, coaching me through this too. You've been a, um, a new friend, as you mentioned in the intro. Um, it's been great to get to know you over the last six months. Um, and uh, I look forward to not only being your friend, but having a beer and a, having a big long hug <laughs> when the lights come back on. Yeah, shot number two, and we're go- we're heading straight for the bar, man. <laughs> All, All right, right. I'll talk Sounds to you good. soon. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes, and if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans just like you and me looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.